This week on WealthTrack, former first deputy managing director at the IMF during the financial crisis. Now, the Fed, in a way that never did before, really has assumed the role of the world central bank. They would be more modest about it. They'd say, well, we, we're in charge of dollar liquidity. But since the dollar is the world's reserve, only reserve currency, really, the Fed is now quite consciously the world's uh, central bank. And in contrast to the last time around, where there was a creation of big new uh, resources to the IMF, and to a lesser degree to the World Bank and other official lenders who supported the poorest countries, this time around, there's really no new resources for the uh, IMF, no new resources for the other uh, multilateral lenders. John Lipsky assesses the policy response now to the global pandemic, next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this WealthTrack podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. The black swan event that is the COVID-19 global pandemic has resulted in unprecedented actions by governments and policymakers around the world. Our guest today was a major player in solving the global financial crisis. I wanted his perspective on what we are witnessing now. He is John Lipsky, former First Deputy Managing Director at the IMF between 2006 and 2011, where he was in the thick of the international policy response. Lipsky currently holds positions at several institutions, including Distinguished Scholar at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Vice Chair of the National Bureau of Economic Research. John, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. It's always a pleasure. You know, there are marked differences between the global financial crisis and this global pandemic, both in the nature of the crises and also the policy responses, which, of course, is your expertise. So just explain briefly what the major difference is between the crises themselves. Well, first, remember, the global financial crisis was an economic and financial crisis that began with economic and financial problems, essentially began in the, in the financial sector, <clears throat> compounded by uh, problems of valuations, first in the housing sector, then it came back and affected the financial sector globally. And uh, so they, it was, in essence, had an economic root. This time is completely different. This had a medical root. The major economies were doing reasonably well, or quite well, and this is a government instituting an economic shutdown or virtual shutdown for medical reasons. So the nature is, and the source of the problem, of course, is very different. John, there are huge differences in the policy responses. So tell us what happened in 08 and 09 when you were in the heat of the action at the IMF. Actually, First of all, it seemed to me that the responses were quite slow. We at the IMF had been convinced in August 2007 that the crisis was on, but we found resistance from authorities in accepting that and willing to deal with it. If you remember, the IMF's managing director in Davos in January 2008 said, 
we needed about 2% of GDP fiscal stimulus from all the advanced countries to avoid a big downturn. In March 08, we actually, me, stated in a speech that we had to contemplate using fiscal means to support the financial system to avoid a crash. And not much was done, frankly, until Lehman collapsed in September 2008. But now when that happened, then folks really got into, the authorities really got into action. And first of all, in October, uh, right away, just within weeks of the Lehman collapse, a brand new institution was created, the G20 Leaders uh, Summit process. And their first summit was just a few weeks later in November 2008 with a very coherent uh, program of both the problems to be addressed, who was in charge, and what they were supposed to do. So, and that involved a, a, quite a few innovations. So the point was, once the crisis really arrived, there was an effort to create first a, a coherent international response, and secondly, a willingness to uh, engage in quite a few uh, innovative policy uh, measures. So contrast to the policy response uh, and the major players now, and, and let me just give you an example of the magnitude of what we're talking about, and these figures change every day. But in the last nine months, there have been nearly 500 stimulus measures by individual governments. The Fed is buying $41 billion of assets daily, which is a $10 trillion annual rate. The Central banks of the G7, they bought $1.4 trillion in assets in March. That's nearly five times as much as the previous record, monthly record, which was in, in April of 2009. So the magnitude of the response that we're seeing is huge. Exactly. Here are some contrasts. The response was slow until it became overwhelming. This time, the response has been very rapid. Secondly, the response has been much larger, not only faster, but much larger than the uh, policy uh, measures taken in uh, 2008 and 9, as you noted in, in scale. Uh, the IMF has estimated that the total value of the uh, measures taken so far are about $8 trillion. Uh, that's vast. And uh, if anything, it's going to get bigger. Now, some of the uh, measures being taken are the same type that were uh, uh, used in 2008. For example, particularly the central banks buying up, uh, engaging in what we started calling quantitative easing. And now we don't even talk about that. The Fed is buying everything. The ECB has announced a massive plan, a massive program of purchasing uh, securities. It's the same idea, bigger scale, much faster. Other aspects, however, even though they're large, are quite different than were the measures that were taken during the financial crisis. You, you described earlier in the financial crisis that there was a tremendous collaboration and cooperation, and it was really the global financial organizations and the central banks and governments all worked together the way this is happening now, and maybe it's appropriate given the fact that it is a global pandemic and each country is having to take initiatives to fight it both from a you know, public policy health issue and also as far as trying to save their economies. 
but who is doing these stimulus measures? It's all individual governments and how they are doing it is really different. So just can you address that? Sure, happy to. The, so let's go back to 2008. The, uh, the G20 leaders in their first meeting identified four things that need to be done. Stop the downturn, promote growth. Who do they assign that to? Everybody agreed to increase fiscal stimulus of 2% of GDP. The IMF was given a trillion dollars of new resources, including a big allocation of SDRs. They said, we have to fix the financial system. They created a new institution, the Financial Stability Board, and said, fix them. And, and SDRs, them. just let me interrupt you, SDRs are special drawing rights. Oh, sorry. Yes, of course. The IMF so-called uh, paper gold special drawing rights that were uh, issued for the first time ever in large scale, and that actually provided some important support to low-income countries. Uh, the financial sector needed to be fixed. They created this institution, the Financial Stability Board, and told them to go fix it. They said, we've got to avoid new protectionism, and they assigned that to the World Trade Organization. And they said the international financial institutions need to be reformed, mainly uh, the IMF. So that was, was quite clear. This time around, they're really, uh, in part, I'm sure, because the a pandemic came came on these countries came on the country so quickly. There was rapid action, and uh, but of a different kind than was taken in the in the financial crisis. If you remember back uh, in the U.S., the uh, uh, remember the 800 billion stimulus package that in, theoretically focused on shovel-ready infrastructure. Uh, there were tax cuts. Uh, this time around, there is a very different focus of the fiscal action, not only in the U.S., but even more elsewhere. Because of the economic shutdown, the near-term problem is to provide income support to people who, who are not working. And as a result, fully a quarter of all the stimulus money, uh, which is very large, as already described, uh, it may be uh, not 2% of GDP, but fiscal action in the U.S. is likely to be 13 to 15 percent of GDP, and similarly in other uh, uh, advanced economies, um, about 25 percent is a payment for job retention, paying uh, businesses to keep employees. Uh, in the European Union, they're spending as much on that already as the U.S. is spending on unemployment benefits, and the U.S. is now with the PPP program providing an innovative kind of support, really the kind that Europe has uh, typically used in recent years to try to support businesses to maintain employment. Uh, there's been a lot of use of loan loss guarantees. In other words, in the US, uh, the treasury is providing backup to the Fed and the Fed is then um, on lending, uh, is leveraging that, those guarantees to underwrite uh, bank lending to the, uh, or financial sector lending to the private sector. And there are large cash transfers. So here's the irony. Even though there hasn't been uh, coordination in terms of what to do, because the nature of the problem is similar everywhere. In other words, governments or ordering the economy to essentially stop or close to stop, uh, that the uh, remedies are different than before, but they're rather similar among the various countries, uh, even without coordination. And last week, 
there was a meeting in Washington, well, sorry, it was virtual, a, a meeting of the group of 20 finance ministers that finally put together a coherent uh, uh, agenda of things to do, but it basically endorsed the things that were already being done. Talk about the role the Fed has assumed uh, in the world. And again, contrasting it to the financial crisis uh, when you were at the IMF and the fact that there was this concerted, coordinated action uh, by finance ministers, certainly by governments, by central banks. And in, in this case, uh, it seems to be less coordination and that the Fed seems to be taking a, uh, you know, a greater role uh, internationally than it did uh, in 08, 09. Am, am I correct about that, John? Yes, and so it's very interesting. Let's, let's think about it. The, the Fed, in response to the financial crisis, did a lot of things it hadn't done before. Domestically, quantitative easing, uh, which it had, hadn't undertaken before. Uh, bringing interest rates essentially to zero, which it hadn't done before. And internationally, the, uh, it undertook some actions that also it hadn't done before. Part of it is not so well known. Part of the freeze, in, in, or one of the reasons why the financial crisis was so virulent in Europe is because a lot of European financial institutions had bought dollar securities and that they had financed them by borrowing, especially from the financial markets, borrowing dollars to invest in dollars, if you will. And all of a sudden, when the banking system froze, they became unable to borrow the short-term dollars that they were using to buy these long-term securities. The European banking system, including the German banking system, was threatened by bankruptcy, insolvency. And the Fed came to their rescue, creating an unlimited swap line uh, with the European Central Bank. Basically, the Fed said, we'll give unlimited credit to the European Central Bank. They distributed those eventually to the European banks and saved the banking system. That was crucial, but it's not so well known, but that was innovative. Now, what's happened subsequently <clears throat> is the money center central banks have instituted in the wake of the crisis, permanent unlimited swap lines among them. In other words, today you don't have that same risk because these swap lines are already in place between the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan. The Fed back in the financial crisis took an action it never had done before. It provided swap lines to four emerging market economies. And by doing so, really changed the, in a way, the international system. So in effect, there are now three classes of countries. The first class, those are the big boys and girls who have the unlimited swap lines permanently among themselves. That you just Business mentioned, so, so the, right, the Bank mentioned. of England, Bank of Japan, and the ECB. Exactly. Right. Business class, those are the favored friends of the Fed who get Fed swap lines, but you don't know who they are until the Fed tells you who they are. And the criteria the Fed uses is known only to the Fed. And then the third class, let's call them the poor steerage folks who have to go to the IMF if they need uh, emergency credit. Now, this time around, the Federal Reserve really has taken big steps by giving swap lines not to four countries, but to 14 countries. 
including some smaller uh, developed advanced economies and uh, more uh, emerging economies like Brazil. So now the Fed, in a way that never did before, really has assumed the role of the world central bank. If they would be more modest about it, they'd say, well, we, we're in charge of dollar liquidity. But since the dollar is the world's reserve, only reserve currency, really, uh, effectively, the Fed is now quite consciously the world's uh, central bank. And the, so in contrast to the last time around, where there was a creation of big new uh, uh, resources to the IMF and to a lesser degree to the World Bank and other official lenders who supported the poorest countries, this time around, there's really no new resources for the uh, IMF, no new resources uh, for uh, the, uh, the other uh, multilateral lenders. Instead, the IMF and World Bank have called for a debt service standstill for the poorest countries from official lenders, including themselves. This was endorsed by the G20. And for the first time ever, the Institute of International Finance that represents private sector lenders internationally have echoed that call. So instead of new resources, a debt service moratorium is being negotiated with the poorest lenders. So these are some important differences with how things worked before. One of the things that, that well, we, I, yeah. we learned in the financial crisis was that if the Fed was going to backstop an asset class, then it was a pretty good bet that that asset class would be okay from an investment point of view. And so what I'm thinking now is, especially because I love your FFF, your, you know, favored- Favored friends of the Fed. Friends of the Fed. um, These are part of the G20, right? Exactly. Okay. But not all of them, but not all of them. No, and so, but but you just said that the Fed knows who they're going to help or not, right? Yes. And yes. and they're not revealing their hand. Correct. So what do we do with that information? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it, I'm sure your investors have already noticed. The magnitude of the Fed's intervention in domestic markets is unprecedented, right? High yield securities, municipal securities, basically across the board. The only uh, Rubicon they haven't crossed yet is equities. I, I wouldn't bet my lunch money that it couldn't happen if things got got uh, worrisome enough. And the Fed has had an impact, right? That the uh, credit spreads, which were uh, uh, widening out initially, have have come in since the Fed uh, began to act in such uh, such scale. And again, I'm I'm going to explain that the credit spread. The spread is, ah. is, is between the, uh, the yields on the highest quality credit and, and the lowest quality credit. Yes, which means you do, if you're the buyer of those securities, their price has gone back up. Right. Those prices were plummeting for the debt securities of these uh, high yield borrowers, which means the yield differential, interest rate differential between a treasury bond and these bonds kept getting wider and wider. The Fed's intervention has brought them back closer, thus lowering the borrowing costs of high-yield borrowers. Right. Uh, 
actually, as your investors probably know, uh, in March, there was a record issuance of high yield uh, debt by the most credit worthy corporations that saw this trouble coming and took advantage of a very liquid market for, for high quality debt. Uh, you also saw right in the US market, uh, companies that might have a bleaker outlook like the airlines were busy drawing down their bank credit lines that were pre-existing to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that they were gonna have liquidity to keep going. Now, if we look internationally, here is the, the part that, that has caught my eye and uh, doesn't seem to be spoken about much and it, it leaves uh, to me a big question about policy. So you have the, the key central banks, most importantly, the uh, uh, Fed and the European Central Bank. Bank of England's much, it's tiny by comparison. Bank of Japan is, their issues are essentially domestic. But all those banks have intervened massively in their uh, local markets, especially the Fed and the ECB. So those markets have calmed relative to where they were. Now, as I mentioned, the G20 ministers last week endorsed the IMF and World Bank proposal and the IIF, Institute for International Finance proposal, of a debt standstill for the poorest borrowers. But what it left, uh, when you look at the list of the favored friends of the Fed, the, the, three, the triple F club, and you look to see who's not in that club, that includes some big emerging markets. That includes Turkey, that includes Indonesia, that includes South Africa. Those are all countries facing some pretty tough times, like very tough times. And the G20, those are G20 members. Yes. But, but the G20 appears to have so far taken no action to help to provide them with any particular help. And uh, you've seen, for example, the uh, president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, has said, I'm not going to the IMF. Well, they don't appear to be in the triple F club. And the G20 hasn't offered them any support. So these are not small. They're not tiny. They're not gigantic, but they're not tiny economies. They are G20 economies that have seemingly be left left to their devices. And that includes Argentina, which is, of course, the current biggest debtor to the IMF, and also just last week has uh, offered to stop paying its private creditors and to has made an offer to repurchase their, to reschedule their debt under very unfavorable terms. So all four could be creating some uh, non-trivial strains in part of the financial market that will have to be resolved one way or another. And for investors right now, this has helped to encourage uh, private investors to stay away from emerging markets. There's been a huge capital withdrawal from emerging markets in general. And um, right now it's virtually impossible to place uh, any scale of emerging market debt. In, uh, in private markets. So there's plenty of trouble still to come that hasn't been addressed. What about China's role in all of this? Well, 
Consuelo, that's a, a terrific question, of course, and one that could be uh, a source for a, a couple shows for discussion, but here are the important things to say. Uh, the Chinese economy uh, just endured, like all of us, like everybody, uh, a quarter that was one of the worst quarters or maybe the worst quarter uh, for their economy ever, or certainly decades, probably ever. And now it appears as if China has been successful in rekindling their economy. Um, you hear stories that it's 80 to 90% back from where it was. But China's role in the world is changing in two, two important ways. One, uh, they are no longer a great uh, magnet for foreign direct investment. Quite the contrary. For example, sort of low value added manufacturing, even before this crisis was shifting away from China to places like Vietnam, to Malaysia, to Bangladesh, et cetera. So the kind of uh, lower value added t-shirts and but even quite a bit more complicated things are now coming from elsewhere. So uh, China's becoming uh, less, uh, it's not less integrated, but more and more, in a, let's call it a more normal kind of economy in which consumer spending, i.e. services, are becoming more a more and more important part of that economy. And therefore, their um, reliance on foreign demand for their exports is uh, less determinant for their economy. And their demand for imports is pr probably more specialized than it had been previously. So it looks like China's making a, a reasonable recovery, but their impact on the rest of the world, despite their growing size, is may not be growing to this uh, being as crucial as it was for many countries before. Still in commodity markets, of course, it's very important, but China alone is no longer going to be enough of a driver to reverse, for example, so, single-handedly the uh, prices for, for basic commodities as it seemed to be in the early parts of the 20, 21st century. But here's, here is a, a more direct challenge, uh, Consuelo, that uh, fascinates me. As I said earlier, the group of 20 has said, the big countries, we already have uh, arrangements between our central banks, we're okay in that way. We're providing a new, uh, not new resources, but we're going to have a debt standstill with the poorest countries, and we're uh, leaving the middle, the large but middle uh, emerging markets on their own. And guess who is the biggest lender these days to the, the low-income countries? It's China. Now, in the past, the Western lenders to the poorest economies uh, forms a, an organization called the Paris Club. And the idea of the Paris Club is basically twofold. Official institutions like the XM Bank, like the World Bank, etc., when they loan to these poorest countries, first of all, they're supposed to be transparent about what they loan and on, under what terms. And secondly, because these countries are so poor, from time to time, when the economies go sour, for example, when their export prices fall, they may end up needing to reschedule or restructure their debt. And when that happens, it happens altogether in the Paris Club with the idea 
that we should all offer the same terms rather than get into some kind of uh, destructive competition as to who can drive the, the best deal with these, with these poor countries. Well, China's position heretofore has been no transparency. It's our, it's our bilateral sovereign business. It's none of your business. And if when it comes time to restructure, we'll, we'll talk about this with our debtor countries, but not you. It's sovereignty and it's none of your business. That, but now they are the largest lenders and the G20, and they're a G20 country. And the G20 has now said all of our members need to have a standstill. They need to be transparent about the debt and they need to coordinate on the terms of their restructuring. And China has approved this. So I think one of the fascinating things to be seen because here the proof of the pudding is gonna be in the eating have they changed their stance relative to the rest of their G20 partners? Is China now willing to say, okay, we're a big guy now and we're gonna act like a big guy and we're willing to live by big guy rules? Or are they gonna to continue to say, now we're a big guy and so we're gonna to continue to make our own rules? They appear implicitly to have signed up to join the club. This will be, I think, non-trivial for an indication of how China views its relationships going forward. Here's my question for you. Will the new rules, which is just agreed to with the G20, will it allow that to apply to the lending that they've already made to the poorest countries? Well, in theory, that's what it's supposed to apply to. In, in theory, what the G20 has said, we're gonna stop debt service payments the, the initial offer is no debt service payments through the end of the year, but it clearly applies to the already outstanding debt. Implicitly, China has agreed, but what we don't know is what their interpretation is gonna be of what they agreed. But I think this is gonna be an extremely uh, important indication of how they view their role in the world going forward. Uh, I had heard an interesting comment uh, from uh, Ed Hyman, uh, who's Wall Street's number one economist and with Evercore ISI on a conference call recently. One of the things that he said was that his gut feeling was that there's going to be something, a crisis that emerges from this crisis that we haven't figured out yet that could you know, mean another down leg or could cause some huge problems. Is this the area that you're looking at that needs to be resolved? It's certainly one of them. It could cause some strain in the following way. Right now, uh, the, the United States, among other G20 countries, was pretty insistent that the IMF has all the resources it needs today to face the problems that they anticipate. And uh, the uh, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, stated last week uh, at their virtual spring meetings that they anticipated, uh, even though they'd had a record number of requests from member countries for financial support, over 100 of the fund's 189 members have asked for aid. But she anticipated that the total demands, because these were by and large small countries, wasn't going to be more than $250 billion, which of course in today's world doesn't sound so much when, when the Congress every few weeks 
allocates another couple trillion. But uh, in any case, uh, the fund, which says it has a trillion dollars, although it's not all usable, says we've got enough to deal. But if these big countries end up having to come to the fund simultaneously, there could be a real issue for the IMF as to, and it, therefore its members on where they're gonna get their resources. And secondly, these countries uh, have a non-trivial position in global financial markets. And if they all, if there were simultaneously, simultaneous trouble uh, could be, could be a problem. One of the things uh, that you and I have talked about is as far as uh, addressing what's going on with this pandemic and what the impact is going to be is, you know, you described it to me as trying to forecast in the eye of the hurricane, things are changing so rapidly that there's no way that you can say anything with any assurance, right? Absolutely. Uh, or the old saying on Wall Street is, if you have to forecast, forecast frequently. And, uh, <laughs> you certainly need to, Dow, because there's so much uncertainty. And of course, part, so much of the uncertainty is not based on economics. It's based on biology. How soon are, are we going to be able to start relaxing the, the shutdown? How quickly can the economy come back? How will we do it? Uh, how successful will it be? We don't know. You've probably seen what happened to Singapore. They were considered models of acting quickly, creating a, a, a shutdown, a complete uh, stay-at-home policy, very firmly enforced. And they started to relax it, and they, they got a resurgence of infections and had to reinstate their lockdown. So, uh, again, you don't want to be alarmist here, but simply to say uh, there's an awful lot we don't know. So it could, it could turn out quite a bit different than we anticipate, and not because we're bad economic forecasters. What else are you worried about? Well, of course, there's ongoing strains uh, within Europe. And... Uh, essentially many dimensions. Two of the hardest hit countries from the virus have been Italy and Spain. And those are countries that were in relatively more vulnerable financial and economic conditions. Now, the European Union is uh, trying to respond. The point here is Italy and Spain are big countries and they will require uh, uh, concerted help and support by their European uh, partners, their Eurozone partners, in ways that haven't, uh, uh, haven't been tried yet. And the, Europe is uh, responding, but uh, it will also uh, be a, a watch this space. Uh, it could be a, a source of, uh, of greater strain and, uh, and problems in international markets. So far, the European Central Bank, through its massive but not as massive as the Fed, massive interventions in European markets have kept things calm. But um, the story isn't over as well. Is there an optimistic side of what we're describing? Is it overwhelming policy response that we're seeing by central banks and by governments all over the world to this? What, what is it that gives you hope um, that maybe this crisis will not spiral downward another you know leg if that's possible let's let's say two aspects two aspects one is the the biology and the, the medicine for sure and i'm sure all of us have been paying attention but 
uh, and hopefully become rather fast learners. There's a lot of uncertainty, as we've said before many times, but uh, it does seem plausible, even in the United States, that we will be able to begin starting seriously to think about how we're going to release the lockdown, the shutdown, um, the stay at home, uh, perhaps in the course of the late May, early June, or something like that. And then the IMF's forecast was based on the notion that the economy will restart around the middle of the year. And the forecast, which is, they, as they themselves said, a, a favorable one, would frankly say that we would get back to the level of output of just before the crisis hit uh, by the end of next year. So not great, but um, that would say from the middle of the year, things would start to get better. And that, that appears to be a possibility in virtually all, most of the major economies. That would be a good outcome. We're going to have, in any case, under the best of circumstances, some real challenges. One, we're going to end up with government debt at levels that may have never been seen before. And um, it would be too facile to say, no problem. We're going to end up with the key central banks with balance sheets bigger than we've ever seen because they're buying massive amounts of securities and not just government securities. So maintaining the financial as well as economic balance, restoring um, a, a fiscal policy, budgetary spending policy to something sustainable is going to be another challenge. So there's going to be plenty to, uh, uh, to think about uh, for quite some time. John, you're not uh, a portfolio manager. You uh, studiously avoid giving any investment advice. And of course, <laughs> <laughs> a wise man. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but we always ask uh, all of our guests at the end of every wealth track if there's one investment that we should all make, what would it be? You don't give specific investment advice, but what's your advice to investors in general? Well, I would say how to think about this. Think of three or four big things. Is this downturn, which is not a normal recession, is a, a government decreed downturn. As we start to release, will we start to get a reasonably sustained and maybe even reasonably steady uh, return to growth? Uh, or is this gonna be lumpy and bumpy? Obviously, what's new about this, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you haven't thought about yourself. Normally, you think of business cycles as affecting particularly the manufacturing industrial sector. This time, it's really the service sector and small businesses. And can they recover in a relatively reasonable fashion, or is this going to be more, more difficult? We're going to start with absolutely amazingly high, terribly high unemployment rates, are they going to come down quickly? In other words, is the, is the growth going to be sustained and reasonable and is how it will affect the service sector? That's one big thing. Second, in that process, is this going to continue to, to be deflationary or disinflationary despite the huge amount of government spending and uh, credit availability through the Fed? Um, because an absolutely critical issue 
is whether interest rates are going to stay low naturally or is is this going to require um, continued uh, policy action to keep interest rates low? Because if interest rates start spiking, uh, if there were inflation, uh, we would find these debt burdens would become very difficult very quickly. So that's the second big thing is will inflation stay very low or even go lower? Third, is this good for the dollar or bad for the dollar? And so far, it's been very good for the dollar. You can read lots of analysts telling you, yeah, but that's a fool's paradise with the U.S. printing so much money, uh, the dollar's got to weaken. Well, you, hear, you always hear that. But uh, this is another important question because uh, for obviously U.S. companies, non-trivial amounts of their profits come from overseas and the exchange rate at which they're going to be translated is a, is a non-trivial question, uh, which also uh, speaks to the long-term competitiveness of the U.S. economy. So all, all these things are, are things to think about. Um, and it's got to be right now as complex and uncertain a, uh, an investment environment as I've ever encountered. And that's why I'm sure of what you hear, I'm sure you've heard this from many others, to say, well, it's going to be a stock picker's world because you can't just assume everybody's going to prosper post-crisis, that uh, there's going to be a big differentiation between those that uh, some businesses aren't going to survive, some business forms aren't going to survive, others are going to benefit. If it were easy, it would be easy. But this is undoubtedly going to be a very uh, challenging and uh, difficult investment environment. So my next interview with you has already been mapped out. I'm going to have you answer the questions that you just raised. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to happen sooner rather than later, John Lipsky. So thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack and sharing your considerable you know, expertise and experience and wisdom uh, in Oh, I don't know about wisdom, but Consuelo, thank you so much. It's, it's, as I said at the outset, it's always a pleasure to visit with you. To hear more WealthTrack podcasts and previous WealthTrack interviews with John Lipsky and other financial thought leaders on our public television program, please go to our website, wealthtrack.com. Coming up with the next WealthTrack, the new investment order with top-rated macro strategist Jason Trenert of Strategus. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Thank you for listening. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. <laughs>